Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. But then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Peter, can I just have you pray for us just as we look at God's word now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us here this morning. We delight in being together in a fellowship, joining a small group. We just want to thank you all the same. We pray, God, even as we go through the sound, that you will open 
our eyes, the eyes of our hearts and our minds, so that we can see the good things that you have in your word. And that when we come out from this service, we shall have something in our hearts to be reflected in our lives. Study with our thoughts, our words, and even our actions. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. So does anyone know uh, what this Sunday is the beginning of? Is that today or? Oh, again, yeah, today's Sunday. Sorry, I'm thinking it for Saturday. Sorry, yeah. So today, does anyone know what the beginning of today is? Advent. Advent, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Shiel and Grace, do you guys know what Advent is about? No? It's about Christmas. It's about the birth of Jesus. So... Advent is the season where we prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus in his incarnation. At our church, um, during Advent, we usually begin our services with the lighting of a candle, right? Which reflects a different theme at Christmas. And then we usually have one of our members give a reflection on that specific theme. Now, as we can see, that's all been disrupted um, due to the pandemic. So what I've decided to do is to give us short teachings covering each theme over the next four Sundays. So the themes are hope, peace, love, and joy. And today we're looking at the theme of hope. Now I don't know if there's um, a more important word for Christians today than the word hope. Um, there's so much happening in our society right now, right? We have the pandemic, but on top of that, we have how the pandemic's being handled. We have the growing political divide in our society. We have the moral decline in our society. Um, uh, depression is on the rise. Um, drug abuse is on the rise. Domestic abuse is on the rise. Suicide rates are on the rise. The list could go on in regards to all the things that could easily cause us to lose our hope, to cause us to think that our future is grim. There isn't much to look forward to if our society continues down the tra trajectory it's headed. This is why I think Genesis 3 um, is so important for us during the season of Advent and also the circumstances we find ourselves in. Genesis 3 is the biblical explanation for why the world is the way it is. Genesis 3 is the fall, the account of humanity rebelling against God and all of creation falling into sin and corruption. Now, I can't cover everything in Genesis 3, of course, in a, a 15 to 20 minute uh, teaching, but th there are two big ideas that I want us to leave here with this morning. The first is this. Genesis 3 presents us with a world full of hopelessness. Genesis 3 presents us with a world full of hopelessness. Genesis 1 and 2 presents a world very different than the world of Genesis 3. Genesis 1 and 2 uh, presents us with a world of joy, delight, wholeness, harmony, unity, peace, rest, goodness. Adam and Eve have a, a perfect union with one another. God has given them dominion over all of creation. They have fellowship and communion with God. They're residing in God's presence without any fear of death. God has declared that all that he has made is good. See, Genesis 1 and 2 is the world in which we long to live in. But as we know, 
something drastically changes from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3. Eve listens to the voice of the serpent. Adam listens to the voice of Eve. And neither of them listen to the voice of God. And because of that, everything falls into disarray. All the blessings of Genesis 1 and 2 are suddenly altered, in a sense, taken from them. For example, Adam and Eve are given dominion over all of creation. But in Genesis 3, this dominion will now involve pain and conflict with creation. As, as we read in uh, Genesis 3.17, when God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this dominion that Adam and Eve have over creation is now going to involve conflict. They're going to work the ground by the sweat of their brow. It's going to be in pain that they do this. The ground is cursed because of Adam's sin. But we see also in those very same verses that I just read that death is also now a reality. Genesis 1 and 2 was a world of life. But now Adam and Eve will experience death, right? For you were of the dust, and to dust you shall return. But we also see the harmony between humanity disrupted, broken, particularly between men and women. Adam and Eve experienced this wholeness and union with one another in Genesis 2. But Genesis 3 paints a very different picture now, right? Instead of Adam delighting in his wife, right, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he now blames Eve, right? Look at verse 12. When, when Adam responds to God, he says, The woman whom you gave to be, be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree that I ate. So Adam blames Eve. And then also in Genesis 3.16, we, we see a further picture of this conflict where God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. See, what, 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 what's being conveyed here is this, that the harmony between men and women, and really all relationships, will be disrupted. Eve will even have to bring forth children through pain. Relationships between parents and children will be disrupted, broken. Human relationships will be affected because of sin. But this moment of hopelessness isn't just the falling apart of human relationships. It's also the breaking down of human relations to God. Adam and Eve have fellowship, harmony with God. They have peace with God in Genesis 1 and 2. But here in Genesis 3, they seek to hide from God because of their shame. Adam even goes so far as to, to blame God, right? He says, it's the woman you gave me that gave me the fruit to eat. So Genesis 3 paints a very um, grim, hopeless picture. Now I want each of us to imagine being Adam and Eve for a moment. You and I, we were born into a broken, fallen world. And so from, from, from a very young age, we became aware that not everything in this world is good. 
But imagine being Adam and Eve who were created in a world of complete goodness and perfection. And all of a sudden, that's changed. All of a sudden, sin enters the world. Imagine the hopelessness, the despair they would have felt. Imagine the shame and embarrassment they would have felt. Imagine the utter fear of God they would have felt. And not fear of God in the sense of wisdom, but fear of God in the sense of terror. They're now hiding from God. Imagine going from complete trust, complete trust in your spouse, to all of a sudden distrust and fear of one another. Imagine all of a sudden going from complete confidence in self to complete inner conflict, right? They, they realize they're naked and what do they do? And because of their shame, they, they seek to cover themselves. They have conflict with creation. You see, Genesis 3 paints a world of hopelessness. It paints our world. But in the midst of this world of hopelessness, there's something else we see at work. There's a small glimmer there's a beam of light breaking through the darkness. God doesn't leave Adam and Eve without hope, but he doesn't leave us either. We see this in the words that God speaks to the serpent in verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. In other words, God is saying to the serpent, You will be humiliated. And then he says this in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I don't have all the, uh, the time to unpack um, all what that means, but, but here's the main point. God promises that there will be a seed, an offspring, that will come from the woman and this seed will bruise the head of the serpent, but his heel will also be bruised as well. In other words, this seed is going to give a decisive blow against the serpent, while at the same time, through this decisive blow, he will also suffer as well. See, this is why theologians have called this verse, verse 15, the proto-evangelium. That is, the first announcement of the gospel. That's incredible when you think about it, that, that it's thousands of years before Jesus shows up, but the gospel is already announced in Genesis chapter 3. This is the glimmer of hope that shines through the hopelessness of Genesis 3. God has made a promise that there will be a seed of the woman that will defeat the serpent. You see, verse 15 is actually a declaration of war by God against the serpent, and he declares in verse 15 the outcome of the war. <laughs> it's already won, basically. So in the midst of despair, God provides Adam and Eve with hope. And not hope like wishful thinking, right? I think a lot of politicians are, are speaking words of hope today, but they, they're speaking words of hope from a place of wishful thinking. Hopefully, we'll be able to find a vaccine. Hopefully, this will all be taken care of soon. That's not the hope that we have as Christians. The hope that God gives rests upon the trustworthiness of his character, that he will do what he says. Right? Christian hope resides in God's trustworthiness. It rests in the character and nature of God. 
one of the most incredible things um, when you read the storyline of the Bible, so when you go from Genesis all the way up to the Gospels, you can actually follow the lineage of the seed here in Genesis 3.15, which ultimately we know culminates in the birth of Jesus, who is the ultimate seed, the one who defeats Satan, sin, and death. So in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, you can actually read the genealogies and you can actually follow the seed, but, but you can actually follow the lineage of the seed all the way from Genesis up until the Gospels. Now, does anyone know, apart from, of course, Eve, does anyone know where the seed begins? Does anyone remember where the seed begins? Who's the first of the lineage, or who's the first in the lineage of the seed? Pardon? Adam. Well, of course, Adam, but but after them, of course, once when the fall happens, who's their third son? Seth. Seth. Yeah, Seth. Seth is the beginning of that seed. He's the first offspring that is of the promise seed, okay? And what's absolutely incredible is no matter all the horrors that Israel goes through, right? When, when you think of Israel's history from, from Genesis all the way up into the Gospels, Israel has gone through horrific things, right? You have 400 years of slavery in Egypt. You have the 40 years wilderness in the desert where the older generation dies off. Then they have to go into these pagan nations and, and fight these pagan nations. And so there's war and many of them die. On top of that, they over and over again forsake God. And because of that, God brings these, you could say, smaller manifestations of judgment upon Israel for their sin. And then it all climaxes or culminates in the Babylonian exile, right? Where God brings Babylon against Israel. They destroy the nation of Israel and they take all those who remain alive into captivity. Now, despite all of those events, what is incredible is that the lineage of the seed is never cut off. So much so that in 2 Kings, the last chapter in 2 Kings, you have all of Israel taken being into, into captivity, and we're told that the king of Israel, who's of the lineage, of the line of David, he is also taken into captivity. He's not killed, and we're also told that he's actually invited to sit at the table of the king of Babylon. So despite God judging Israel, 2 Kings ends with hope. The lineage of the seed is still intact. The line of the Messiah is still there. Not even a 90-year-old barren woman named Sarah can keep God from fulfilling the promise of the seed. God protects the lineage of Seth, which of course goes to Noah, and then Abraham, and then continues on through his sons. And God's promise in Genesis 3, here in verse 15, comes true ultimately with the coming of Jesus. And that's why Paul writes in Galatians 4, to seven, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's a, that's a declaration of the divinity of Jesus, right? God sent forth his son, but then we also see his humanity, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So this is the hope we as Christians have in a world of hopelessness. Jesus has come, and through his death, 
he took a sledgehammer to the head of the serpent, and at his return he will take a blowtorch to the head of the serpent and finish him off completely. This is what Advent actually points to. But here's an important question for all of us, practically speaking. How do you and I, who have this hope, hold on to this hope? How do we actually stay hope-filled when all around us is a world of darkness, hopelessness, and despair? When it seems like things are getting worse, not better? How do we actually maintain, sustain that hope? Well, now I want to draw your attention to Lamentations 3. So you can turn there. If you're not sure where Lamentations is, go to the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Lamentations. Now, does anyone know the context of Lamentations, the context in which it's written in? Can anyone guess? It's, it's often a neglected book, but it's actually a very important book. Anybody know the context of Lamentations? Lots of sadness. Yes, that's definitely true. Very much so. So, Lamentations is actually written just after Israel is taken into Babylonian exile. And it's most likely written by Jeremiah. Jeremiah actually saw the, the destruction of Jerusalem. So this is a lament, a theological lament by Jeremiah based upon what he saw when Babylon destroyed Israel. And it's also a lament that seeks to help Israel understand why this has happened and how they can be restored to relationship with God. So, um, God promised Israel for a very long time that he would destroy them if they continued to rebel against him. And he promised that he would send the Babylonians to destroy them because of their sin. And so Jeremiah has actually seen the utter horror of Israel being destroyed at the hands of evil Babylon. And the things he describes in the first two chapters of Lamentations are horrific, utterly horrific. There's starvation taking place because what happened, of course, in the ancient world is a, an army would surround a city, right? The city would have walls. And basically, they would keep them in that city until they ran out of food. The only way out is if you'd have to go out and fight the, the, the army. And so basically, Israel, the people, are starving to death. Not only that, the young and old are actually being slaughtered. Everything is torn down. The, the temple is burnt down. Jeremiah even alludes to the fact that women are eating the fruit of their own womb to, in order to survive. That's the horror of what's happening. Babylon decimates the people of Israel. It's the worst circumstances you could ever possibly imagine apart from hell itself. Jeremiah has seen this happen and he's overcome with a sense of hopelessness. And this is what we read in, in Lamentations 3, 16 to verse 20. This is Jeremiah. Think about this. This is a prophet of God expressing this to God. This is what we read. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope 
from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gal. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Jeremiah, this, this man of God, actually is expressing that he is lost. He has forgotten what happiness is. That his endurance has actually perished. That he has lost his hope from God. This is a man of God. Now here's the question. How does Jeremiah fight for hope in the midst of hopeless circumstances? Well, this is where verses 21 to 24 are key. Look at verses 21 to 24. This is the key line. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What does he call to mind? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. You see that? He intentionally calls to mind focuses his mind on who he knows God to be. But this I call to mind. That is, he's active in focusing his thoughts on who God is and what God has done. Now, I think this is really important for this. Let me say this. Hope will not be sustained or maintained in your life by giving all of your focus and attention to all that's going on around us. Now, I'm not saying stick your head in the sand and be ignorant. No, no. It's good to be informed. But being informed is different than being consumed. If you're going to be consumed, be consumed with having your thoughts on God and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ, especially this Christmas season. And then be informed on what's going on in our world. See, brothers and sisters, we have an unbreakable, unshakable hope in Jesus Christ. But it's only by fixing our hearts and our minds on that hope that we'll be able to have hope in the midst of hopelessness. So let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. That in the midst, Lord, of a world of hopelessness and uncertainty, we know that our hope in Christ is sure. It's unbreakable. It's imperishable. So I pray that you would help us to fix our minds on the hope that we have in Jesus. That he is the one who has defeated Satan's sin and we pray this in Jesus' name.